Thank you very much. I appreciate the introduction. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing today? Uh, that's good. I'm doing well. Um, yeah, so uh, like John was saying, I'm going to, I have the privilege of being able to share with you this morning. I believe this is the first time I've been able to speak at River Cross, so um, just, just a heads up, uh, big thank you for the, the team at the back, uh, especially Rob. Unfortunately, um, my voice is pretty loud and pretty boomy, and it is, uh, it's too loud for the microphone and not quite loud enough without the microphone, so I always make sound people's lives difficult. So big, <laughs> big thank you for them. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate uh, and the work all of them have uh, put into the morning service and every, every weekly service. Yeah. So recently, we as a church have been working through the parables of Jesus. This, these are the stories that he told people about what God is like and what it means to follow him. And today we're going to be taking a look at one of the more well-known parables. Uh, it's called the parable of the talents, and it's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. We'll just uh, pull that up on the screens here in just a second. Perfect. Yeah, so I'll, uh, yeah. I'll start reading that there. And uh, you can also find it on the, uh, on the Bible in the pews in front of you. At, for it is as if a man going on a journey, this is the parable that Jesus is telling, it's as if a man going on a journey, hey, there we go, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. And he gave, to one he gave five talents, a talent, by the way, is a unit of currency, uh, it's kind of like saying he gave five loonies. In fact, the version in the seats in front of you might even just say bags of gold. They might skip the whole talents thing. Uh, just say bags of gold. To another he gave two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. A man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness." The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you haven't trusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. I hid your bag of gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So, but instead he, uh, sorry, I, I, I've kind of lost my spot here. I have you. 
And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with 10 talents. That's the first servant. He had five, and then he gained five more. Now he has 10. For to all who have more, or, or for, to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have in abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless servant, throw him into the outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, uh, that's quite an ending. So um, let's dig into that a little. So when we talk about this parable, we often focus on the idea that God has given each of us different gifts and skills that we're good at, and we should use these gifts for him. In fact, that's actually where in English, that's where we get the word talents from. We say someone is talented at something. We say someone has a lot of talents. It comes from this parable. It's people taking this word into English. It's a reference to this parable. And that idea is not wrong. It is absolutely true that God has made each and every one of us good at different things. And it's just as true that he often gives us the gifts he has given us so we can be a blessing to others. But I'm going to argue that that's not what this parable is actually about. See, if we want to understand what's actually happening here, we have to look at what's going on around the parable. Matthew doesn't just toss this out on its own. But instead, it's as part of a bigger message that Jesus has given. See, that's the way the book of Matthew works. Matthew, it's kind of divided into five different sermons or uh, called discourses that Jesus gives over the course of the book. Uh, you've probably heard of the first ones called the Sermon on the Mount. This, on the other hand, is part of the fifth and the last sermon that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. And each of these sermons has their own theme, a big idea that Jesus is communicating through the sermon. And for this one, the Olivet Discourse, the one the parable the talents is from, that big idea is Jesus' return. See, right after Jesus gives this message, Matthew tells us about the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Matthew positions the parable of the talents, in fact, as being the second last thing that Jesus says before he gets arrested. So this whole discourse here, it's being presented as Jesus' parting directions. He knows what is about to happen, and he's giving his followers instructions on how they're supposed to act once he is gone. So when you read the, the, the part of the Bible this is from, which is Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there's a whole lot of talk about watchfulness, about patiently and faithfully waiting for Jesus' return. And I get the impression that he's urging his followers to remember that the work and the joy of following him won't slow down or become less important just because he's gone. We humans sometimes have a hard time with things like object permanence. It's out of sight, it's out of mind. Sure, it's one thing to follow Jesus for a few years when he's right in front of you, but to follow him for your whole life when he can sometimes seem far away, that's a bit less simple. Especially when things start to get difficult. And part of, part of what Jesus is talking about here is preparing his followers for that difficulty. That within the lifetime of his audience, they would see the temple destroyed. They would see Jerusalem put to the torch. They would see their people, the Jewish people, scattered to the four winds without a home to call their own. How can these people follow Jesus when all the external markers of their faith have been taken away? That's one of the questions they're wrestling with. So it, it, the, the, this is, again, this is kind of the surrounding stuff. 
It's a collection of exhortations not to lose faith, to not get distracted, to carry on following Christ, and to look forward to his return, to anticipate, yes, Jesus is coming back, instead of dismissing him as being, oh, Jesus, out of sight, out of mind. And it's not only in the middle of this, but it's actually at the climax of this that Christ drops the parable of the talents. And after reading the parable, it can be easy to see why people might think it's about our natural abilities. We might read the parable and think, well, this parable is about how God has poured out his blessings on some people. He's made them good at a lot of things, and he's given them a whole bunch of money or a whole bunch of resources or a whole bunch of time, and from those people, he expects a great deal. And then there are other people that he just hasn't really blessed with all that much, and from those people, he expects a lot less. And that can seem like a logical interpretation, but I'm going to poke at it a little bit. So first, read through the Gospels. Easy, I know. It doesn't have to be now, uh, but at some point, if you haven't already, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then, then, then look at Jesus. Take Jesus as he's revealed in these books and try to imagine him sitting someone down and saying to that person, you're good for absolutely nothing, but don't worry, that also means I don't expect anything from you. Neither of these statements sounds anything like him. It's just not who he is. First, if you are a, first, you are a child of God. You are infinitely valuable in his eyes. You are loved beyond what you could possibly imagine. God does not say, oh, hey, wouldn't it be a funny prank if I made a person who was absolutely useless? That's not who he is. That's the good news. The maybe less good news is that it's also completely out of character for Jesus to tell someone that he doesn't expect anything from them. Try to imagine Jesus saying to someone, oh, you don't really have to worry about being holy or about loving your neighbor or about standing in solidarity with the oppressed against the oppressor. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about these. Those are for special people. Those are for the gifted and the rich and the famous. You get to kind of just sit back and coast. Again, completely, completely alien to who Jesus is. See, on the contrary, the Bible shows us that, if anything, the exact opposite of that is true. You know, oh, but I'm bad at that is a pretty common excuse in the Bible that people gave when God calls them to do something. And you know what? Never, never, not once, not in all of Scripture does God ever say, oh, you know what? That's a great point. I, had, I, I never thought of that. You are bad at that. I'm going to go call someone who's better at that. Not once does that ever happen. Instead, the exchange tends to go something like God calls a person to do something, okay, and the person says, oh, you know, that's really not in my wheelhouse. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. Uh, I don't think I can do this. And God says, I know, isn't that great? And the person says, well, no, that's, that's not great. It's actually kind of a big problem. I'm not good enough to do this. And God says, no, don't worry. Trust me, it's going to be great. And then the person goes and they follow God and they trust God and God shows up and lo and behold, it's great. The giant Amazonian found in South America is the largest species of ant known to man, or at least the largest species of ant known to this man after a cursory Google search. I was going to put a picture of it on the slides, but decided to instead show mercy to those who might not want to spend their Sunday morning looking at pictures of insects on massive projector screens. So instead we have these little, these little guys here. But the giant Amazonian can grow to be over 40 millimeters long, which, okay, actually isn't all that big. 
I mean, when you consider that your average ant is less than a dozen millimeters, then yeah, 40 is pretty impressive, but it's still not exactly huge. See, it turns out that the largest ant in the world is still an ant. Similarly, I think it can be easy for us to get too caught up in comparing ourselves to each other and to lose perspective. Compared to God, the wisest person in the world is still pretty foolish. The toughest person is still quite frail. The, 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 the most courageous person who ever lived is still kind of a coward. You see what I'm saying? The largest ant in the world is still an ant. Uh, so the idea of somehow being talented enough or special enough to warrant extra responsibilities from God is completely bogus. It just doesn't make any sense because the most talented person in the world is still an ant. Well, I've gone and got my metaphors mixed there, but you know what I mean. See, the, the reality that God works in is not one where he relies on the most gifted people and the most talented people to get the job done. The reality that God works in is one where he takes everyone, including and especially the people who might feel they have nothing to offer. And he does powerful and amazing things through us. The truth is, God is God. He's all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. If his object was to get things done as quickly and efficiently and effectively as possible, he wouldn't bother with us at all. He'd just do it all himself. God knows that we are bad at things. God knows that we are going to make mistakes and we are going to fall short and we are going to make a general mess of things. But he wants us to do it anyway. Why? Because we matter to God and he wants us to share in what he's doing. Because God delights in taking mistakes and redeeming them, showing us how evil can be used for good. Because the work God is doing in our world is ultimately about love. Now, none of this actually answers the question, though, which is, okay, if the parable is not about our giftings and our money, then what is it about? And the answer is invitation. See, keeping in mind that this is a parable about the return of Jesus and bearing in mind that it's following on the heels of all these other parables about the importance of faithful service and watchfulness as we wait for Christ to come back, I think the idea is that when the parable talks about those to whom much has been given, it's not talking about people with a lot of cash or people who are good at a lot of things. It's talking about people who know Jesus. The much that has been given isn't worldly skills or possessions. It's God himself. See, the parable is not a reminder to use our gifts for God, although we should do that, nor is it an encouragement to share what we've been given, although we should do that. And both of those things, the Bible does talk about doing both of those things, it just does it in other places. It doesn't do it here. See, instead, I think this parable is an admonishment, maybe even a warning, that there are no bystanders in the kingdom of God. That's what I mean when I say that this parable is about invitation. It's a reminder that God has entrusted you, yes, you, personally. He has entrusted you with the work of his kingdom. He has entrusted you with what he is doing in our world. And you might think, why me? Why me? I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm probably just going to mess up. To which God says, I know, isn't it great? Jesus' core message, the core message of Christianity, of our faith, it's not about what happens to us when we die. Yes, we've been rescued from sin and we get to spend eternity with God, but when you get right down to it, that's more of a perk than anything. I mean, it's a really good perk, mind you. You, know, you, you won't find many employers that can match that, but it's still a perk. The more pressing message is about what happens to us when we're alive 
Jesus isn't just calling us to an afterlife with him. He's calling us to take part of what he's doing here in the world, right here, right now. Now, I keep saying this word, work. I know it's a cruel thing to mention on a Sunday morning. It's also a pretty nebulous word. What do I mean by it? What is the work that Jesus is doing? The work is redeeming the world and everything in it. Okay, but that doesn't really answer the question. What does that actually mean? It means that the world was created to be, in a way, God's throne room, right? It's a place where we could all be gathered in his presence, and we could come and hear what he has to say, and we could come and be heard by him, and we could all be together with him, and then something happened that separated us from him. So when we talk about this work that God is doing, that he wants us to be a part of, it's this work, it's participating with God in making the world closer to what it was supposed to be. It is... It is it is helping to restore this idea of God's presence. And everything we do, everywhere we go, we have an opportunity to do that. To act or to react in a way that lines up with the world of love and holiness and justice that God is shaping things to be. Or in other words, we have the chance to either take the talents that God has given us and invest them, or we can take them and bury them. Every day when we're at work, at home, with our friends, going for a walk, running errands, going to a concert, doing whatever it is you have to like to do with your free time, we have a choice. Will we take God up on his invitation to participate in the work that he's doing in the people around us? Will we strive to show love and mercy in the ways that we interact with people, or will we compartmentalize our lives, make God's work something we do on Sunday morning, if that, taking what he has given us and burying it? Will we be faithful with the talents he has given us, or will we bury them? And like so many followers of God throughout history, it's easy to look at this and think, I'm not good enough. You're right. You're not. None of us are. That's the best part. Because again, this parable is not about God making certain people extra special and then expecting extra special things from them. It's about how every single one of us has been entrusted by Jesus to be a part of what he's doing. And it's easy to think, well, what if I mess up? Don't worry, you will. You absolutely 100% will mess up. I guarantee you. And that is true of every single person in this room. But the beautiful thing is that there is grace for that. Because it's not about us doing the work, it's about God doing the work through us. He is the one doing all the heavy lifting, we just kind of need to show up and be willing to be a part of what he's doing. And the more that we rely on him, the more that he's able to give us. And again, I want to remind you that God is all-powerful. He can do anything he wants. When you worry about making a mess of things, remember that he doesn't have to involve us. He can just take care of everything on his own, but he invites us anyway. Why? Because God loves you so deeply that he wants you to be a part of what he's doing, even though it means that there's going to be mistakes. God doesn't need you to be involved, but he wants you to be involved, even though it means that there's going to be mistakes. See, going back to the parable, the ultimate tragedy of the lazy servant who buries his talent instead of doing anything with it is that he acts this way because he's completely failed to understand who his master is. 
We see in the parable that the reason why he acts the way he does is fear. He sees his master as harsh and is so terrified of making a mistake that he doesn't do anything with what he's been given. But is that what the master is really like? There's no evidence that the other two servants saw their master that way. They don't say these things about him. And those are the servants who understood their master's will. Those are the servants who knew what their master wanted to be, to be done and did those things. Similarly, one of the biggest obstacles we can face in serving God is our very idea of who God is. We become afraid of failure because we perceive God as being cruel or distant or disappointed with us. But like the lazy servant, that's rooted in a false idea of who God is. In a way, the real privilege of the other two servants is that they knew their master for who he really was. And because they knew who he really was, they got to know him more. And it's also true that as we drive away those lies of God being cruel or distant or disappointed, we too will get to know him more. Matthew has this being the last parable Jesus tells before he is arrested and crucified, as we were saying earlier. And as we prepare to take communion this Sunday in just a few minutes, think about the fact that the body of Christ was broken and the blood of Christ was spilled, not just so that we could be with him when we die, but that so we can be with him now. So we can be a part of what he's doing around us. So that we can be a part of encouraging the discouraged, of binding up the brokenhearted, of challenging the oppressor, of remembering the forgotten, of stopping for those who have been left behind. Eternal life with Jesus does not begin when we die. It begins now. This is what he has entrusted us with. And the challenge is, will we invest it or will we bury it? Thank you. And so I'm just going to, if you'd like to join me in prayer for, uh, for communion. God, we thank you so much for, for who you are, for the love you have for us, for the mercy you've shown us, um, for the ways that you, you, you work through us even though, even though we don't deserve, us, deserve it, the way that you, have, you work through our lives to transform us and to transform the people around us. And we pray that now as we, as we go to take communion that you would fix in our minds the sacrifice you made enduring torture, name-calling, beatings, ultimately death from the pe people you created, from the people you loved so deeply, all for our sake and for the sake of your kingdom. And that it did not end with your body being broken or your blood being spilled, but that you rose again showing that you have conquered death and that you have conquered sin. And we praise you for the mighty work you did in that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.